from Noble Robot on East Hennepin Avenue and look at that, Minneapolis. This is Nice Game Slope, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Ellen Burns Johnson and I make nice games. I'm Steve McGregor and I make nice games. And I am Martha Croy and I too make nice games. For this week's episode, our topics are cameras and bug tracking and triage. And so, if everyone is ready, let's start. I heard that Oxford comma. I heard it. <laughs> good. Good. I, I meant it. <laughs> Came through. I meant it. Y'all better recognize that Oxford comma. Oh, that's funny. Well, in truth, um, uh, there wouldn't be an Oxford comma because it's two things, not three. Yeah, I suppose. Cameras, comma, and bug tracking and triage. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. 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 Okay. Grammar. I only heard it because I wanted to hear it. <laughs> I guess is what we've concluded. And I only wanted you to hear it because I just love the Oxford comma. So. I also do love the Oxford comma. It's fine, I guess. That's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> makes sense where it makes sense. Uh-huh. Anyways, uh, Alan, you've been playing Flappy Dragon. You were just saying before we started recording that you you were looking at data for it and you're it's yeah. sad? <laughs> <laughs> um, I've mentioned Flappy Dragon because we've been talking about idle games both on and off the show. Uh, here on the show and on Discord for like a few weeks now. It's mm-hmm. a really hot topic. Flappy Dragon isn't an idle game. It has some idle mechanics. Um, and it's just one of those mobile games that I picked up because I like trying a lot of games and I like dragons. So I was, you know, I was doomed basically. Um, and uh, it's got like 102 dragons you can collect. That's a lot of dragons. Mm-hmm. I've got like 70 some. That's a lot of dragons too. I'm getting there. Okay. Name them. <laughs> oh, I can't read the names. The names are so weird. It's an hour long show. <laughs> there's like the there's like the the cool dark blue gray ocean dragon. Okay, okay, okay. That gives you like awesome power ups because it's mythic level dragon. Oh, mythic level. Oh. Anyway, okay, we don't have to go into the details. The point is, <laughs> is that apparently in the last seven days I've played it for eight hours. <laughs> so, oh, now to be fair, some of that was in the car because I went up to the cabin with my sister and my dad. Mm-hmm. But also, in fairness, not all of it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you've described this game on the show before. It's a fairly simple game. So eight hours in a seven-day period seems quite significant. It's I got to get those dragons, man. Got to get those dragons. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's not a complex game, but it, it's fun to smash towers. Like in Flappy Bird, the, you know, like the inspiration for so many Flappy games. You just flap. That's all you did. Mm-hmm. There's more going on in Flappy Dragon. Yeah. Not just like it's not just flap and dragon. There's also like you can get power ups and you can smash towers and you can eat people. There's Pretty a, cool. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a joke in there somewhere. Got to get those dragons. It feels like a thing, but I I can't I can't I can't square the circle. It's uh, it must collect every one. Yeah. Yes, but there, never mind. <laughs> it definitely feels a little bit like Pokemon. Yeah, yeah. I believe it. I believe it. There's a donut dragon. Donut dragon? Yeah. This is what happens when you have to have 102. Right. As you just start putting. You just got to like, okay, well. Food product dragon. I guess there's one that's like a salad dragon. Yeah. The donut dragon. Okay. No. The cosmic space donuts are how you level up your dragon power. Oh, okay. So so it's on theme. This specific donut dragon Uh is the power that it gives you is greater chance of getting Getting cosmic donuts donuts Uh, as you uh, flap around. I rescind all of my snarky criticism. Right. Yeah, I can tell. I'll, I'll, I'll work on some more and get back to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, can tell that you totally took it all back. From, oh, good. From the tone. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, 
I will play it so you don't have to. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Um, in other news, I won a game of Star Trek Ascendancy. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Good job. Thanks. Uh, I was playing the Breen, mm-hmm. um, and they are isolationist. They don't like people in their space, and I think I thematically played that quite well because I didn't want people in my space. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious because one of the mm-hmm. things that we all love about this game, right, is that the specific faction mechanics like do align pretty well with like the flavor of the different factions as depicted in the show. Yeah. So what? How does that work for the Breen then? I, uh, Mark, you're the Star Trek expert. <laughs> well, the Breen of, of all the factions in Star Trek Ascendancy, they have the least to draw on from Star Trek canon. Mm. They appear in like six episodes of D Space Nine. And when I say appear, it's a pretty low bar. Okay. You only even like see a Breen in like three of them. Okay. Something like that. It's a very low number. And and you don't really learn much about them at all. And so um, the designer actually, I saw this comment the other day, the designer of the faction uh, also designed the Dominion uh, faction mm. and wanted to include the Breen so that when you do the Dominion War variant yeah. of the game, you could have Dominion, Breen, and Cardassians versus Klingons, Federation, and Romulans, oh. which was how it was in the show, yeah. three right. on three. Yeah. Um, and so he's like, I don't really care that you didn't see a lot of the Breen. They were canonically allies in the Dominion War. Yeah. And so I wanted to do that. It's like kind of a neat thing. And it's one of the things, it just reminds me of like, when you are making a game or making design decisions, there are like many reasons to make choices. Yeah. And all of them are valid, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And and it, it, you, you leave yourself a mess to clean up sometimes. Yep. But if the, if you if you wanted it for that reason, that's always a good reason, as long as you wanted it. So I found that sort of interesting. Yeah. But with the Breen, they be, because you know so little about them, it kind of leans into uh, the 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 thing about them in the game, which is that you cannot venture into their space to learn anything about them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, that right? doesn't make a lot of sense. And even in the show, characters will say... Like, you know, no one's seen a Breen with their mask or their helmet off. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I hear it's bitter cold on Breen, but no one's ever been there. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, it's part, it's in the text of it. Mm-hmm. But that sort of mystery and unknowability is, like, where all the mechanics for the faction is is based. Yeah. Cool. Except their deep strike fleet, <laughs> which, if uh, I don't know, yeah. if you know the game, you can, you can build ships and you can put them in fleets. And sometimes those fleets will have special abilities. Yeah. And the Breen deep strike fleet, which you made excellent use of. Thank you. Um, is you can invade a planet and ignore all the ships that are defending that planet. Yeah. What? And it's an incredibly powerful thing. And it is, yeah. there are ways to counter it. It's mm-hmm. actually not that difficult to, to counter it. But if you do the things you need to counter it, suddenly the Cardassians next door can come to, come and take a planet from the other side. Right. So it, it, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. But that is based on a pe- one of the very few things we know about the Breen is they launched a surprise attack on Earth mm-hmm. in one of the episodes of DS9. And then there's, a, they, you know, they bombed San Francisco and left. Yeah. And like, that's essentially what the Deep Strike fleet does in the game. Yeah. Uh, which is so fascinating. Yeah. Was... Um, because it doesn't actually align that well with their isolationist tendencies, mm. but it's fine. Like, because it fits the show. <laughs> well, and it, I think it makes sense for, for the board game too, because like, if you were just isolationist and just kept to yourself, then you wouldn't feel like you wouldn't have a lot of influence on the board. And so the Deep Strike right. fleet allows the player to, 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 aside from just sending ships out and, most of the Breen's like special stuff happens in their space. Um, outside of their space, they're just like regular ships a lot of the time, except for this deep strike fleet. Yeah. Um, so this helps them uh, per, or cause, you know, influence the board in ways where they wouldn't otherwise. So, right. And when you sense. invade planets, mm-hmm. the Breen don't want to invade planets far away. Yeah. Because then it's not Breen space. Right. It right. Needs to be, it needs to be, you need to get a, a quick path to the homeworld for it to be technically Breen space. You mm-hmm. get all your benefits. So the deep strike fleet, 
it's not interested in taking over a planet or even really destroying it. It's yeah. just interested in in causing damage. Right. Which is what the Breen... And so it actually ties those two pieces of lore together yeah. in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the Breen or my second favorite um, group to play. Yeah. My favorite is Ferengi mm-hmm. business. <laughs> business. <laughs> well, I was just mentioning how few references there are to the Breen, but actually... Recently, in Lower Decks, we saw some Breen. Yep. Uh, uh, incursion on yeah, the planet Yeah, I saw them and I was like, oh, that's going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was. I did <laughs> bombing a planet. It was great. Yeah. You were watching uh, it for, for strats. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I took notes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you want to play as Vulcans next? Uh, that is my plan. I'm uh, trying to develop a strategy in my head on how I'm going to end up playing the uh-huh. Vulcans. We'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I think, uh, I mean, not we've played two games since we started playing this game again, mm-hmm. but I think we'll probably keep at it. We'll play, you, you know, you kind of can't play it every weekend because yeah. it takes so long. It does take a whole Like, you know, if you think like a weekly D&D meeting is a, a lot of commitment, this is more so. So, yeah. Um, well, you know, but it's fun because it, as designers, we love talking about how all those things fit together because mm-hmm. um, it's it's more than just like the actual like learn learnings from that that type of game. It's just it's fun to just. But it's fun to play games with game designers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know. It takes longer, though, as we discovered. Sure does. <laughs> All right. My topic. Cameras. I feel like when I when I picked this topic before, I felt like we had already talked about cameras um, in a previous episode. And if we did, please let me know, because I don't remember. I looked it up on their website, and I didn't find anything, but. Um, How I've, long has this podcast been going? Exactly, right? <laughs> well, it's like, not just like it's not going to be able to stick in your head, but like the technology and changes. That's true. Over that's time, true. So. It's, you know, we've been running this show for almost six years now. Wow. Uh, so <laughs> there's going to be advancements and things. Um, but yeah, I wanted to talk about cameras because uh, they're, you know, very vital in, in games. Um, I'm mostly going to talk about 2D cameras, but a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about today um, can also apply to 3D cameras. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess I just want, I'm just start off talking about like different techniques you can do to like position your camera on the, for, with the player. Mm-hmm. Um, the easiest one to do is to just have the camera literally be on the player, like the center of it or whatever. Just follow the player the whole time. Um, it's really easy cause like, especially in unity, you just attach the camera as a child object of the player. Yeah. Um, but it's not a great game feel uh it's like disorienting and there's not a lot of like things you can do with the camera if you just if you just leave it simply as that mm-hmm. um especially since like you know sometimes you'll want the player to be able to see more of the screen because enemies are coming or something like that um it's just not very flexible um so it's really this is a really good technique for like game jams and stuff uh because like you know you only have 48 hours or whatever uh so just spend the 15 minutes to attach it on the the, the uh on the player and fix whatever bugs are there and then you're good to go. Um, but I would not recommend this in the final product. Uh, don't do it. <laughs> um, the next step is to have it lerp towards the player. And lerp? Lerp. Uh, linear interpolation, which I remembered earlier today. Uh, and that's when you kind of just have like the camera. Uh, it follows the player, but like it's slow. It, 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 as it gets close to the player, it slows down its speed. Um, so like, it's like following behind the player effectively. Um, whenever, whenever the player is moving, the camera is moving 
just behind it. Yeah, it's kind of tethered, but like yes, but you know, with a on a spring rather than on a pole. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and this is useful because it looks a lot better. Um, and the player can sometimes feel faster than they are. If you've ever played, um, I think the older Sonic games in particular, um, you oftentimes Sonic would oftentimes run so fast that he'd be on like the right side of the screen while you're running to the right, mm-hmm. um, and you'd feel super fast. Um, cause you're like, oh, I'm faster than even the camera itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> as a result of that, and it's, it's interesting, I bring up Sonic, uh, you can lose the player if the player goes too fast. Um, and a lot of times in speedruns in particular, uh, with Sonic, with older Sonic games, they will like play through a le- they play through a level so fast that Sonic is off the screen and they just like have learned the level and the timings and stuff. So they just don't, they like basically are playing from memory cause they can't see where Sonic is. Um. And that's not a great experience for our casual players. Yeah. Probably not a great experience for speedrunners either. <laughs> um, so that can be a problem with this kind of thing. But it does look nicer and so it's 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 you know, it's more difficult to implement than just to that point play, real but, quickly though, yes. is that if you're designing a 2D platformer and it's such that a speedrunner might be able to outrun the camera mm-hmm. if sustained, that's not necessarily a reason. That's not actually a problem. Yeah. Because that's most true. players won't encounter that. Absolutely. So you so you kind of you don't need to cover every edge case. Yeah. Just the ones that you expect players to find, not not ones that are technically possible. Yes, to find, that's right? a very good point. Um, I think in Sonic games in particular, I ran into that, and I'm a casual mm. player. Uh, but, I mean, I'm biased. I don't really like Sonic games that much either, so <laughs> maybe... Uh, anyways, we'll move on. Um, bounds for the camera. Um, this is when you the camera doesn't move past a certain distance away from the player. Um, this is, you know, you get all the benefits of flirt, but then you won't lose the player um, if they're like falling too fast or something like that. But it's more difficult to do, right? You got to calculate the bounds. You got to make sure that the camera stays on or make sure that the player stays on the screen while you're moving around and things like that. Yeah. Um, it's important. It's helpful to do it this way because like, I think in particular cases when specifically, I think we ran into this with Wizards Hatchel, like there were times when Sprocket would be falling um, and the camera just could not keep up with the player mm. just because like, I don't know, it was a really fall or far gap or something. Yeah. Um, and so like you would just get lost and it would make your fall even worse potentially. Cause like you could run into a bot or you'd end up falling into a gap when you could have easily avoided it. If you could see it on the screen, things like that, or see yourself on the screen and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so it's important to make sure, you know, you consider where um, your bounds are um, And this, like having bounds will help prevent that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not getting into the technical, like, how do you literally type this code in to make it so it doesn't, <laughs> so that you have bounds and stuff? Because I think it depends on your your game and how you want to implement it. Some of this, some of the ways that you want to implement camera, you want to think about it in terms of, like, you want to think about it in terms of game design. Um, because uh, sometimes you'll want to, like, highlight different things on the screen so that the player, uh, you know, is aware of them and can plan around that. Um, it is as as a tip. It's often very times useful to have the camera move in front of the player, um, so that they have more real estate to see things and react to things. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly in a, in a platformer, but like you know, it can be useful in like a um, isometric view and things like that. Uh, and there's also like uh, you can also make like focus points so that um, you, as the developer, can like highlight important uh, things on the screen. And these can have like really fun like cinematic moments too, yeah. where like you know you walk into a thing and then a you get the little black bars coming down. <laughs> yeah, the camera will move to like 
your MacGuffin or whatever it is. Yeah, you could build a whole camera system based on uh, influencers. Yes. So you could say that your main character ha- ha- is like a, a influence of one, mm-hmm. but then um, other suddenly other influence points enter frame. Yeah. And this has an influence of point two. Yeah. And so now the total is of all influences is one point two. Mm-hmm. And so then you split the difference between those two objects by the amount that they each pull a little it's gravity basically yeah yeah you can you can have a whole system based on that where if there's no other uh, focus points then 100% of the influence is on the main character yep but then as soon as other things come in they, they everyone all the, the cameras are, those points start fighting for the camera's attention yeah and it's just an automated system yeah so that's really fascinating and really useful and a way to get sort of it uh, done quickly yes um, but again like you have to you you have to know that there aren't going to be thirty enemies each pulling a certain amount right. of focus or whatever. Yep. Um, that 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 point about cinematics is really interesting because mm-hmm. the thing that I was doing in Widget Satchel, um, originally, yeah, was thinking really about composition because uh, I mean that's my background. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, that's something I really care about about what the screen looks like. Yeah. You know, like if uh, Sprocket is small and on the left side of the screen, you're telling the player that they have a, 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 a bit of a struggle ahead of them. Yep. Right? The, the, and if the, if the camera is tight on the character in the center of the screen, you are basically informing them to not worry about uh, enemies at the edge of the screen. Right, yeah. So you're, you're communicating a lot through the composition. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I learned through playtesting is that the composition of the, of the scene is useful on that dimension, yes. but not on... A, I'm walking and jumping and I need to keep track of the player. Yeah. It would say those things sometimes fight against each other. Yeah. And so as the game developed, I moved further and further away from of, of very specific compositions all the time mm-hmm. for every section. And I, I gave a lot more influence to where Sprocket is on the screen. And it got closer and closer to the classic just anchor the camera to the player. Yeah. Because it even if it's simple, it works. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so you will definitely find that you will have to find a balance between all these things depending on what the content of your game is. Yeah. So it's not something necessarily you could work on first. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, one thing that I was gonna uh say um that I think is maybe kind con- a little controversial was probably not that controversial <laughs> is that yeah I know what Stephen <laughs> bringing up controversial points um it's it's that like camera at this point is kind of solved ish. Like we've been doing it for long enough, particularly with two D games. We've been doing it for long enough that we've like established, like, uh, uh, what's the word? What's the word? When conventions. You've... Thank you, conventions. Um, f- uh, for camera, and I think players will kind of expect that of a lot of games too. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of evidence you can see, you know, from games. You can look at a, like your type of game, the game you're working on. You're working on a platformer, right? Um, you can go to a plethora of platforming games and see how they do camera and go hmm i guess i could do it this way or this way or this way you know um that work for the game that you're trying to work or trying to make mm-hmm. um and so like i think it's really valuable to just look at how other games do it like this camera in particular is really helpful to just see how other games do it because like they've 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 solved it in their way because it made sense for their game you can use the techniques that they used um for your game um, yeah, so I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, I, I I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a solved problem. Sure, but you're right in that the look to other games and see which ones feels most like how 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 your layouts are going to work. Yeah, and then start from there. Yeah, then find your way to what your game is properly, um, ra- rather than start from wherever to right. find w- what your game needs. Yeah, you know? yeah, it'll just save you time in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah, and then uh, another thing you can do with camera is you can do special things with the camera. Like you can have fancy zooms uh, or like change the camera speeds or something like that. And they can make certain parts of your game feel dynamic or uh, unique um, in a lot of ways. So like one thing you could do is you could zoom out the camera when you're fighting a big boss. And make your character as long as you can still see your character. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll make your character seem, you know, really small in comparison to this giant boss that you're now fighting or something like that. Um, it can really make for um, an impactful moment um, in the middle of your game. And then all of that is a lot of like, uh, I guess, cinematography. Um, I mean, Mark can speak to that more than I can, but I mean, I've watched movies, <laughs> 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 y- y- and y'all have watched movies too, I'm sure. Um, so you know how they do it, uh, and you can use some of those techniques uh, for your games as well. Well, I'm thinking of a recent example, Metroid yeah. Dread. Oh, yeah. With lots of secret areas mm-hmm. will have camera bounds that the camera will stop and yes. the Samus will continue to the left or right or up or down the screen. Mm-hmm. And that, that gives you an idea of sort of, of, of some geometry, not just that the camera doesn't go so far that it sees nothing. Yeah. But um, like if you if the camera is positioned where Samus is at the very top, mm-hmm. then you know you're essentially uh, at, in a ceiling. Yeah. Regard, even though you really couldn't, the whole layout of a Metroid level is this Byzantine thing. Yeah. But if you're in an area where you're you're at the top of the screen, you can see things on the bottom. You're kind of you feel like you're in the attic. Yeah. Right. And so that that yeah that composition is really important to give the players impressions that your uh, level design, your uh, all those other things, it can hint towards but can't fully communicate. Right. And you can subvert that too because oh, like. Yeah. You can um, have like hidden pathways and things that you, you know, Samus Metroid games are, you know, they have a bunch of these, uh, you know, you can blow up a part of the wall, even though like it seems like this is an actual wall because the camera stopped there. But the, it's, you know, the camera is devoting so much space um, to this one empty area. You're like, why is this area empty? And then you shoot around and you can find the uh, the pathway that leads you to the other side of the wall and things like that. Yeah, you may not realize that it's that communicating to you, but in your head, you're like, this doesn't feel like the the end of the wall. I'm going to try mm-hmm. shooting some things at it. Yeah. And then you feel really smart, but actually the game is giving you a little bit of a hint. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I shoot at all the walls. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is Metroid best practice. So right. that's not the best example. But <laughs> but yeah, like that kind of, those kinds of techniques can be useful. Um, and yes, yeah, so I, I, I encourage listeners to think about this not just from a technical aspect, uh, aspect, but from a design aspect. And it can enhance your level design and the, the feelings that the player gets as well. Um, you know, like I said, make boss make things feel more epic or less epic, um, as as necessary. If you uh, mess with the way that the camera works, mm-hmm. especially particularly if you do it at special occasions, you don't want to do this all the time because then it doesn't feel like that much yep. of a special thing. Um, and I guess I wanted to talk about how we did cameras in our games now because mm-hmm. uh, why not? Um, in Fingence, we don't really do camera stuff. Uh, the the camera is static. <laughs> it's like you, there has to be a camera because I can see the fish. Right, there is a camera. Um, but like, yeah, uh, uh, the players move around, but the camera doesn't move at all. Right. Um, but the enemies and I kind of, in some ways I kind of wish we did it differently, but I guess there are uh, good sides and bad sides to how we did it. Mm-hmm. Um, they, the, the players move around on the screen, but they don't move with the, the level. Um, but the enemies in the level itself, you know, move, they move to the left of the screen. Right. Um, There's no zooming. It's essentially yes. an auto scroller. Yes. Effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, another way we could have done it is we could have had the players move with the camera, and then the and then all the enemies stay static um, instead, and the then the players would just move along with it, um, and that could have been useful too because we ended up using a lot of you know um, when things move off the screen after a certain point, you just you call them because like it's a waste of um, 
it's a waste of resources to just like have things on the screen when they're not on the screen mm-hmm. or have things in the running in the game when they're not on the screen. Um, and so like, you know, we, we cut them at a certain point. Um, but we, we could have made it differently and that maybe would have helped with our level design if we had done it this, this way is to just have it so that the enemies were on the screen and they did not move. Um, cause then we could have designed like whole, whole levels or lar- longer chunks, I guess, of levels and things like that. If we you mean, so to. the player has more control over where they're moving back. No, no, no. So, so, so we as designers can create, I guess we ended up doing this still, but we could create more. It'd be easier for us to be able to predict how the enemies would move when they spawn. Right. This, and this is, this is a technical thing. Yeah. Visually, it would be the same. You're Visually, just, it'd be the same. Right, right. And I guess that's a big part of this is when you design camera systems is to like, there are multiple ways to achieve the visual result you're looking for. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I realized I kind of got into the weeds on it when I didn't need to. <laughs> yeah. But, um, well, I think, I guess I was overcompensating because I was like, Finch doesn't have a camera, but we did do things, um, <laughs> as a result of the game, not having a camera. So like, you just have to account for that. Mm-hmm. Um, in treasure stack there actually, I, uh, in retrospect, now that I'm thinking about it, we did have a little bit of a camera thing. Like the camera is mostly static, especially if you're playing single player, but as you're in your, in multiplayer, um there are like four boards on the screen um and the camera will zoom out to compensate for the four boards on the screen and as players get eliminated um i think it zooms in more um so it feels a little bit more like a 1v1 situation feels more um oh yeah intense i guess because and like, that transition is an interesting moment yes of, of like further focusing on the remaining contestants. right and it tells the other players oh somebody got eliminated who was that you know, um, so it's kind of a neat, it's kind of a neat thing that we could add in there. Mm-hmm. Um, in Rhythm Rumble, the camera follows the players, um, but the way that I use, I actually use the camera in in conjunction with the limits of the players. They aren't allowed to move outside of a certain range um, of the camera, and I think that's kind of how it is in a lot of fighting games. Is like after a certain point, even if you're moving backwards, the 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 play, the character does not actually move any further back after a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just limited the player from being able to move past a certain point. Um, but it would still like the camera would still say towards the center of the two characters, unless, you know, they were at the edge of the actual arena, in which case then the camera would just not move uh, past that, that edge point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then, uh, this, this, this horror game that I've talked about on the show before that I'm working on for future club, but I can't talk about too much. Um, uh, is a, is a 2d side scroller mm-hmm. um and i had like i use like focus points um for that kind of a camera um because you, we want your players to be able to see certain things on the walls or whatever and then like uh, realize that it's an interactable thing mm-hmm. or if you know like if a monster is chasing you or something like that you're going to want to know that the monster is chasing you unless we don't want you to know that in which case then we can <laughs> manipulate that yeah <laughs> <laughs> um it's actually kind of interesting like, sometimes you could hear the monster moving around but you couldn't hear or you couldn't you couldn't see it and it was that was that was scary mm-hmm. um I, I normally played without sound because that would make it too scary for me to <laughs> test <laughs> um we talked about widget satchel a little bit but i i think when we did the game jam version i want to say that i did the camera initially mm-hmm. in the game jam version is that do you remember that i know that i didn't okay so it must have been it was either me or lane mm-hmm. um but I, you mostly worked on it after the fact right yeah and then we had we had systems in place to like allow you to like, well, you had systems in place um, to allow you to like uh, zoom or make the camera like static for certain rooms so that uh, you as the player could see 
all of the like puzzle you were working on and things like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Certain areas in the game, you'd enter this the zone, mm-hmm. and then the camera would either zoom in or zoom out to a fixed point, and then it wouldn't change again until Sprocket left that area. Yeah, which is not totally uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of, I mean, you think of like Mega Man yeah. or other games that are like room based. Um, that is that's sort of a very old school technique. Yep. But then you sort of mix and match it with other systems. And right. Widget Satchel had like ten different camera philosophies depending on where you were in a certain area. It all worked together. Yeah. It was just like maybe we could have and it was really dictated by the level design. Yeah. Um in a way that I think is probably true for a lot of games like this. Mm-hmm. Um but uh that was one thing where we just like we had like three or four different types of areas and where the camera was treated differently in those areas. Yeah. And that was maybe one too many, mm. I think. Mm-hmm. But um it it all hangs together, but like it's maybe something we could have optimized. Yeah, we used a plugin to help us with that, right? Yeah, I don't remember what it was called, but it's, it's it's pretty good. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, yeah, because I remember that being really valuable for us. I mean, we we still finagled it to work better for our. Oh yeah, life. I like hacked it. Yes. to pieces. I keep saying we like I did the work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but it it uh, it was really helpful. I mean, to just uh, get that idea yeah. going one of the things the plugin provided was a lot of helpful gizmos in the editor so you could visualize these things yeah like bounds and mm-hmm. limits and and, stuff and it like helped that. us with the, the level design um when we're making the, the different um yep yeah the different rooms and stuff yeah. yeah it's like this is what's possible and so you could make a level and then like i usually went in and did the camera mapping after the fact when, mm-hmm. when you'd send sections to me mm-hmm. but you could always test it and you had all those tools available to you and they were pretty easy to use yes so you could you didn't feel you felt free enough to see if this makes sense with the tools we've got um, before committing to something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I guess, uh, yeah, it, it, I think it's just, you know, it's valuable to think about these things. Um, just like all of our topics. <laughs> I guess that's not always the case. But <laughs> no, you just need to listen to our podcast and never think about it after that. Right, right, right. Don't, don't ever think. Well, I think the moral of the story is kind of yes. what you said early on, mm-hmm. which is just, just like everything you do in a game, like you can use the camera not. It's not necessarily just a problem you solve, right? Right. It's uh, use it as a tool for delivering the the, the message, themes, and you know, and, and, and features of your game. Yeah. Um, from a design perspective, from an narrative perspective, it's a, it's a tool that does all those things. Mm-hmm. And if you're just gonna like, well, this doesn't make me seasick, so I'm done. <laughs> like, I feel like that's kind of like, well, okay, fine, I guess. Yeah. But you can do more with it. Yeah. That is baseline, though. Make sure that people don't get sick from your camera. Yeah. As best as you can. <laughs> we have a feedback form we tell you guys to fill it out sometimes you fill it out in fact someone filled it out a couple weeks ago yes what did they say steven well we have we have a bunch of different questions on here uh, and the, the interesting thing on here is um we ask about thoughts or suggestions or feedback they have for the show yeah and they said they don't have any they said none oh. <laughs> our show is perfect uh feedback <laughs> it is feedback okay. right it means we're doing something correctly um so yeah i mean they did they did what they would like us to do more roundtables and interviews hey we're doing a roundtable today yeah yeah and we so. do like doing interviews too mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um but you know like it's not just roundtables and interviews we're all always game to try <laughs> I did not try to do that. I'm sorry that came out of my mouth. <laughs> we are always willing to try new things. Yes. Um, and if you have ideas for things that we should talk about, like roundtable topics or people you think we should interview, like we'd love to hear that. But also if you have ideas for, you know, formats you want us to try out or, you know, you want to link us to a different podcast that they're doing something cool and you want us to try it, mm-hmm. we're happy to read those, you know, those pieces of input and think about them and we'll take them and make them our own. Um but the other thing is we just like hearing from you guys. So yeah. 
you know, if, if you liked a particular episode or you think that the joke Alan made was super great, um, <laughs> jump to the feedback form and tell us what you think. Where can we find the feedback form? I bet you can figure it out. It's nicegames.club slash feedback. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So one form of feedback, we were just talking about the feedback form. Uh Uh-huh. You know. Unless you skipped the middle of the podcast, which is often the best part. Right. I just want to say, maybe not this time, but often is the best part <laughs> um, with the most laughs. Uh, w- one form of feedback is a bug. Hey. Hey. It's not the transition we talked about before, but that's fine. <laughs> no, that was like, oh, I bet you find bugs with your camera. Yes. Um, we did them both there. We're okay. covered. Okay. Yeah, there we go. Got it. Got it. Um, yeah. So we want to talk about bug tracking and triage. No Oxford comma. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, starting this up, we were having dinner beforehand and I was thinking, what am I going to say on this? And then I ended up writing like 500 words of an outline. <laughs> um, so it won't take, I don't think, you know, we're not going to go through like the in-depth on everything you should do about bugs because right. I think a lot of what you'll want to do with your bug tracking and triage is going to depend on the size of your team mm-hmm. and what you need for your game, right? So I wanted to kind of just talk through um, the different factors that you want to consider when you're tracking bugs, when you're logging bugs, when you're triaging bugs. Yeah. And I'll talk about them first from, you know, my perspective with the teams that I work on. And then we can kind of, each time we talk about a new topic, we'll just open up the floor and talk about the same ideas, but with the teams that you guys have been working on. And, uh, you know, we can also talk about what it means to track bugs and to triage them as a solo developer. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. 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 Cause I think like the principles are going to be the same throughout, but the way that those principles are acted upon is very, very different depending mm-hmm. on the size of your team. Mm-hmm. Okay. So game development, it could be just you. It could be you and a small team of two to three people or whatever, or five people. You could have a big team like nine or 10. You yeah. could have multiple teams, but yeah. if you're making a game. You're going to have bugs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, That's just a fact. Just a fact. So I wanted to start by just kind of um, providing some context for the rest of the conversation and what I'm going to be bringing to it, which is the type of teams that I'm currently working with. Okay. So, you know, we've done game development together, the three of us, mm-hmm. plus people here and there. Mm-hmm. And that would be like a small team. Right. Um, the groups that I'm working with right now are, I would say, like medium-sized teams to okay. big teams. I have one team that's just kind of like a handful, like a good five or six people. Yeah. Um, plus some like stakeholder voices that come in and and give ideas and share feedback and log bugs. Yeah. Um, and 
um, then that particular group also has a bug tracking team who I think is working on multiple products. Mm -hmm. And then they'll come in and test the games and log bugs. And then we'll go back and we'll look at the bugs and the stakeholders will help prioritize the bugs. And we'll get into that. Mm -hmm. But that's one team. Uh, and the other team that I'm working with right now is a game that's a software as a service platform. So it's got several smaller games with a content management system. Um, and the team that is working on that, you know, like a half a dozen developers or whatever, they're not just responsible for building new games. They're also responsible for working on the platform. Mm, okay. And that, so it's, it's a pretty big undertaking, right? Yeah. Cause like you've got the gameplay and it's not, the games are pretty simple because we're letting, you know, just regular old users who aren't necessarily engineers come in and work through the CMS to, to put content in the games. But the game design is set. It has to be simple enough for people to just be able to pick it up and make something. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you take even that simple game and you wrap it in a content management system that's focused on being able to be content agnostic so people can use it for like large scale training events. Mm -hmm. It gets complicated. Yeah. <laughs> it gets complicated. So we have... UX designers who are, you know, you have me, the game designer. We've had game, de they've had game designers come in in the past to help bring on new games under the platform. And then they have like a couple senior engineers, like two or three senior engineers who are floating in all like here and there all the time. And then a bunch of other software developers. When, so it's a big undertaking. And right. that's, that's, those are the contexts that I'm coming from with these big organizations, with these big tools. And I say that now because I'm going to be mentioning things that are like very role specific. Yeah. And the tools that I use ah. are the tools that a big team or a team that is made of multiple teams is are going to use. But that's not necessarily what everyone's going to be using. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting you bring that up because I'm thinking about the different types of teams that I've worked in. I've never worked on a large, a really large team. Like yeah. I think the biggest team effectively that i had worked in is maybe like 10 people max something like that mm -hmm. um but some of the teams that i had had particular roles um and like you know there'd be people who were just qa who were only supposed to find and report bugs um and, and then report them and track them on on jira or whatever um and then i was part of that too when i worked for concrete um as a qa intern um i was the one reporting the different bugs and stuff that i would find um but when you're working on a small, you know, in, in a small team of three or something, um, you, you you have to do a lot of that work yourself. Uh, and so everybody's tracking bugs. And I don't know when we did it for Fendant's, like we didn't really we didn't have a system so much for tracking it. We just kind of remembered. Well, that's not completely accurate. We would show Fendant's off at Glitch's playtest events years ago. Um and uh, I would take a lot of notes, and some of the notes would be, this is a bug, this is a bug, this is a bug. And then I would uh, compile those notes onto, like, a checklist. Because mm -hmm. um, sometimes it'd be, we should do, we should do, this would be, like, a game design thing, or a game design problem, which is right. the same thing as a bug, uh, where you'd be like, oh, uh, this thing's too strong or something. Um, and so, like, you know, we, when we fix that, we check it off. Um, but it'd be the same thing with bugs. Mm -hmm. um, but it'd all be on the same list. We, w I didn't like say this is a bug. Well, I did say this is a bug, but I didn't like. They weren't like sectioned off. I guess if that makes sense, they weren't separate from the game design issues or ideas or whatever that we had. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I think that the way that I did it worked pretty well. It was not as organized as maybe it could have or should have been, but like you know, it worked for us. Um, because then we just had a giant list of things that we would just go through. And so it was kind of nice for our workflow. Yeah. I mean, the um, game, it worked because yeah. the game shipped. It did. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Still has bucks, though. 
<laughs> well, but of course. we'll get to that. Right, right, right. <laughs> Mark, how about you? Well, for Widget Satchel, we used Trello. Yes. And, oh, um, my belly. <laughs> and we had one column in Trello for bugs. Yeah, we did. And that was pretty useful because we would just add to it and add to it, add to it. But the idea was it couldn't get too long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also meant that when we fixed it, we could put it in the done column and then it could live there forever. Yeah. So if we ever had a similar problem, we could like, is this a new problem or is it something that's coming back? Mm. So we kept a record of that. Yeah. Um, and even towards the end of the project, when it was just me working on it full time in the last uh, couple of months of the project, I was still using the same system, even though nobody else needed to be really briefed on it. Sure. Um, and so it was sort of designed in a way to it couldn't be overwhelming because the tool we were using to track it couldn't handle that much yeah. right. information. So we didn't use Jira or any any system where we like. And we didn't assign bugs to people necessarily. Um, and, and there wasn't a lot of metadata associated with these things. Yeah. Because we just were not, well, the tool didn't allow for it. Essentially. Mm. Trello is not, well, I mean, that's kind of the sweet spot of Trello for a lot of projects. Yeah. It's like just enough organization where you're not spending all your time organizing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, that worked pretty well. And on projects where I don't have a system like that, where I just compile a list somewhere, whether it's a post-it note or a notepad document or, or a Google Doc. Yeah. Um, it's I get lost in those lists all the time. Yeah. And so just some simple categorization can be really useful. That's true. And on a bigger project, you want to have different types of different types of bugs. And then after that, and if you have a large team and, and stakeholders who needs to see these things, then you want to talk talking about using a, a cursed tool like Jira. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh yeah. Good old Jira. We'll yeah. get there too. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, I mean I think I love Trello. I love moving cards from one column to the next. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've talked about this so many times. Yes. Um, but I think that w- the point that you just made, Mark, about um, when it comes to tools, you know, you might feel pr- the you might feel pressure to want a more complex tool, but that ne- necess- that isn't necessarily an, an instinct you should listen to. Mm-hmm. There's, I think, I was just asking Eric about this the other day. I think it's Cunningham's law, but it might have a different name. We'll put it in the show notes if okay. you know, regardless. But uh it's like the the idea that the work that you need to do will expand to take up the time that you give it. And I feel like the yeah. effort, you know, the effort that you put into organizing your tasks will expand to use up all the yeah. features that your yeah, tool sure. provides. So I have definitely gotten myself lost in Jira uselessly, just poking around and reorganizing workflows for that never resulted in any value yeah um but they looks cool anyway so we'll get to tools again um i think i guess we can talk about it now but uh i did want to say as as we get into it a little bit more um for my team one of the things that's important i think is the the roles that people are taking because of the time that it can take to organize right so um the team both teams that i'm working on are very sensitive about using people's time in the right way sure so there are um there is a producer we have scrum we have scrum one implementation is a little a bit more mature than the other um team's implementation of scrum and there's some weird finagliness like there's like a new product owner but there's also a producer on one Mm. and then there's a scrum master on one but they're not really doing a lot of the scrum masters it's anyway nothing is ever perfect but point being is like um, the development team, they're not responsible for grooming the backlog. 
right? They're not responsible for organizing what goes into which sprint. They can help the product owner inform those decisions by saying, this is sized bigger than this, or this is what this is going to take and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, But the dev team is not actually taking the time to think through those trade-offs. They're only taking enough time to inform those trade-offs and then they get back to, you know, building the product. Right. Um, For me, I'm not really a part of the dev team per se uh, because I'm not dedicated to the product. I'm a support role for the dev team. Like Mm. the dev team, the way that I think about it is like, they're, they're the person, they're the people putting the code in. Right. Okay. Um, but I am staying involved uh, in that world enough and also in the business world enough so that I can help translate when things need to change with the game state. I am I am uh, I have a good mental model of the game state mm-hmm. and also everything that needs to happen so I can help different parties tr- like talk to one another yep. and also solve game design problems. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. Um, yeah, I'm kind of a peripheral as the game designer on both of these projects. I'm kind of like peripheral to the dev team, but yeah, the product owner, they're the ones who are actually like deciding what goes where. And I bring that up now because that's one of the things they have to do when they look at bugs, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So in the, we, we have one project that we use Jira to, to organize Yeah, and it's big. And we have another project that we're using Azure DevOps, Mm -hmm. which is okay. Like Microsoft's. Oh. tool for that okay sure um not neither- heard of it before yeah <laughs> that's well, why i was like what all right yeah it's a thing they always it's always referred to as like ado i guess oh, okay um but yeah azure devops so both tools are used in pretty much the same way um you use it to log issues and those issues can take many different forms they can be new features they can be tasks they can be bugs and then that all goes into a backlog that the team pulls from to get work done yeah so um, the one project has a QA team. They have a dedicated, like they have a QA team. That QA team, one of the things that they're working on is just QAing this game. And so they're just going through it on a regular basis and they're logging things and they're like, this doesn't seem right. Is it a bug? Mm-hmm. And then someone will, someone who's really familiar with the game will look at it and be like, indeed, that is a bug. Or, yes. hmm, you forgot that this thing is on the backlog for the next sprint and it's going to fix this. So we're going to link them together and then we're going to put that bug in the closed column. Yeah. Oh, man. The most, sat- I, I've said this on the show before, but the most satisfying thing about bug tracking is when someone report- reports a bug and you're like, this isn't a bug, will not fix. Yes. <laughs> the best. Yes. <laughs> it's it's really mean. <laughs> but I, I like that feeling. It feels good. I don't know if it's mean, like just because, you know, like when I had to do QA work and maybe yeah. this is something that you experienced too when you were doing QA work, but like mm-hmm. the mindset I had was like, I'm just testing everything. If it looks funny, I don't have to make the call as to whether it actually is broken or not. Yeah, right, right. You know, I'm just saying, hey, this looks funny. Here's why I think it looks funny. Mm-hmm. Here's how you can reproduce it. Take a look at it. Yeah. If it's not funny, great. Like the, you know, the value I'm bringing is just saying, hey, take another look at this, mm-hmm. you know? So... I feel like that's key to a lot of the these workflows you're describing is it's about uh, who has ownership of the of the discovery and ownership of the solution and uh, and and communication between people. Yeah. yeah. So you know, if you're using Trello, it, that doesn't that cannot withstand a team larger than say ten. I don't necessarily think if yeah. if you want to if you are handing things off to people, right? Yeah. Right. But then when you have those big complicated systems. You also don't want any single person to have to deal with all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then that makes the uh, the sort of the scale of the tool 
more manageable because you're only interacting with something. All you're doing is reporting bugs. Yep. Right. All you're doing is processing bugs. Yep. All you're doing is looking at the lists that have been assigned to you and dealing with them. Yeah. You don't actually have to like understand the whole project's organization unless your job is overseeing it. Right. In which case you don't have to do any of the labor involved in any right. of the steps. Right. So everyone has about as much to do with it as anyone else mm -hmm. if yeah. you're doing it right. Exactly. And you do have to have pretty good lines of communication and yep. lots of trust with the other people yeah. that you're working with to make that work, right? Um, which can be tough when you're dealing with such a big team. So right. it's kind of, like, I guess, a catch-22, right? Mm -hmm. Like, to make that kind of process work with a big team, mm -hmm. you need trust. And it's harder to establish trust in big teams. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so the process that it, that really happens, I think, with both of these groups um, is somebody logs a bug um, with one group that's the bug that's the QA testers mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or with the other group, it might be um, like a salesperson or pr producer who is working really closely with the end users. Yeah. Um, the customers who are paying for the service. Okay. And they'll be like, they wanted this as a new feature. Let's put it in the backlog or they're reporting this weird thing and we need to have it ready, you know, fixed in two weeks for their event and mm. that kind of thing. And so, gosh, this is very much more regimented than I am used to. Well, it's a much bigger team, right? It, right? it makes sense, and I suppose there are you know other factors involved. You were—I think you said earlier on the show—the stakeholders are the ones that are prioritizing all the tasks and things. That just sounds wild to me. <laughs> yeah, well, they're they're prioritizing things. They're yeah. prioritizing the backlog based on value that can be realized in the near future. Sure, right. So, and there are so many things that go into making this this kind of decision. And this is really interesting because we're having a conversation about bug tracking and triage. Yeah. But ultimately it's all just work that the team needs to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. So right now, based on where we are with this particular project, um, one of the teams is doing like 50% feature and refinement and 50% bugs. Okay. Yeah. And for the, like the next, that's probably going to carry through for this sprint. The next sprint, we're going to lean a little bit more towards doing new features. And then the following sprint, we're probably going to lean a little bit more towards doing bugs. Um, and that's just how it is. Because like, depending on what's coming in from play tests and from, you know, all the UX tools that they have and whatnot, yeah. like they might say, yeah, this, this particular bug is causing a, a big issue. And so we're going to mark it as a, high priority and high severity yeah. because it's stopping people from actually getting what we need them to get out of the game. Yeah. yeah. Um, versus like, well, this is, <laughs> yes, Ellen, you've said 18 times that the line breaks are not correct on the screen, <laughs> but it's not, we have other things that are worse, yep. like that are higher severity right now and yep. therefore also a higher priority. You can complain about it all you want, but it's not going to change that, <laughs> um, that kind of thing. So, those are all decisions that have to be made, right? And so the stakeholders are, they're the voice of the business, right? So they're the, they're, the, and they're in closer contact with users than, um, like the rest of the team is. Mm -hmm. Um, so they, they're in the best position for this particular project to decide which things go next. Mm -hmm. But again, they aren't making those decisions in a vacuum, right? They're making it with input from the team. Yeah. So they might want feature Z to be in the next sprint. Right. You know, the team's like, you, all you said is that you want feature Z. You haven't explained why. You haven't explained, like, what, you know, the details the of what you actually it. need and yeah, why yeah. it's important. And we need to, get, you know, we need to get our UX person in here to double check this. And we need to rewrite the content. And we yeah. need to make sure we understand the engineering implications. And, like, it's not ready to start. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that's the same thing for bugs, right? Like, and I think this is where we're going to start getting into the meat of it is like when something is ready to start, um, it has a certain like criteria and a certain like depth of detail that a person can read and be like, okay, I understand enough that I can start solving this problem or I can start implementing this feature. It's just, it's a problem. It's work that needs to be done. It's a problem that needs to be solved, whether it's a new feature or it's a bug. Yep. Um, but the things that you're going to include on an issue that is going to be a new feature versus a bug are different. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, the process of having to like review what's in that item that's in ADO or Jira or whatever and understand it and then like put it where it needs to go in the backlog and in the sprint plans, that's like the same. You got to look at what it is. You got to look at how much, um, you know, what the impact is on the player, what the potential value for the project is and how much effort it's going to take from the dev team, right? Are you going to do one giant 10-point issue or are you going to be able to fit in three smaller three-point issues or whatever? And we will link to the Agile episodes. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> so you know, you don't have to hear me explain all that again. Um, but it's the, the trade-offs are going to be the same. Yeah. The information that you put into those issues are going to be different, though. So, like, just to kind of talk through what we have in our bug reports that come in from this QA team, and we had to work back and forth a little bit to get to a good spot with our process. But, you know, they'll talk about what part of the game it's in, they will describe the issue in a specific, they'll describe the issue mm-hmm. and like what they think the problem is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then they will also, there's this little separate section of the page that says, what are the steps to reproduce it? That's so important. Yes. It's very important. I can't stand it when I get a bug report. In my old job, I would get bug reports. I don't really get bug reports in my new job because <laughs> we're too small, I guess. Um, um, but yeah, in my old job, I couldn't stand it when I would get a bug report and they wouldn't say how they got the issue they just say this happened and be like how did it happen did you do such and such were you using a cheat how did you get to this point because otherwise i i don't have any way to fix the problem then i got to go have a conversation with this qa person about how they got it how that happened and stuff yeah and it slows down the process significantly um so yes document that stuff it's very important Mm -hmm. yeah and that i think it it highlights the difference between the types of bugs that we think about when we, when we say what's a bug like yeah. there's the this happened and it shouldn't mm-hmm. versus this is a compiler error yeah yeah right like those are both bugs but right like one is essentially like oh i have all the information to track it down maybe i don't know how to fix it yet but at least i know where to go mm-hmm. versus someone just saying is it supposed to do that yeah yeah <laughs> like uh i don't know I'm like right right yeah. Right, right, right yeah and i think a lot of times um with those kinds of things sometimes you could like go well it depends on how this team how your team works but sometimes you could go to your developer and ask if this is intended this, this way. Yeah. Otherwise, I can report it. And that can be like a yes or no question, right? So that it doesn't take up that much time to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you know, depends. Well, those steps to re- reproduce are important to that yes. that, that process for the developer because right. they can reproduce it and then go, oh, I see what you mean now Yeah. when you said it shouldn't look this way, but it actually does work as intended. Right. Whereas the description may not, because they're coming to it from a, a place of, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so they may not describe it in a way that, where you could say like, oh, it's supposed to do that. Yeah. You, you might just go, oh, it definitely shouldn't do that because yeah. they they have some assumptions or, or, or make some insinuations that you, that, that you don't, doesn't, doesn't allow you necessarily immediately to, to map it. You do still need to investigate a problem. That's not a problem. Yep. Right. Yep. That's why they're called like bug reports and not bugs. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. 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 Absolutely. I realized you were making a more point thing or did i 
go past where we were talking. Point. Uh, well, we got our episode title. Liz, <laughs> <laughs> you were making a point thing. Yeah, more, um, more point thing. <laughs> more point thing. Game development in a nutshell. Yes. More point thing. Um, well, yeah, no, I, I guess I wrote it backwards in the notes here. But yeah, no, I was trying to make a point, And that is like, you got to slow down and go faster. I think it's really, I think it's fun. It, like, it can be fun. Maybe fun isn't the right word, but okay. like energizing when you're like searching for bugs. It can kind of feel almost, you can get yourself in almost like a gameful mindset where you're like, oh, I got something that's interesting. I'm going to make a note of that. Mm-hmm. And you get another one and you're like, oh, look how many bugs I log. Interesting. But maybe that's just me. <laughs> that's my, definitely just okay, you. <laughs> that's just me and my psychology. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, is like, it's, and maybe this is just because the teams I work on are so big. Yeah. No idea when I'm going to get to that. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, if it's just as like you were saying, Mark, this doesn't work, <laughs> you know, like yeah. it, that's useless. That's useless. Two weeks down the road. Right? Yeah. 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 It's not, I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty useless. Mm. So, and it can be useful even if you have the opportunity to go track down the QA person and talk to them and have a conversation. If it's right. two weeks later, they won't even remember. Exactly. Mm. Right. So it's, if you're, you're logging a bug, whether it's a bug you discovered and you're just on your own logging bugs, mm. or if you observe something like what you described, Stephen, when you were play testing and you were watching people, you were taking detailed notes. Yeah. You didn't just like shove them on the shelf. You like compiled them. Like right. I would do that the, well, the next day or something like right. that. Right. Yeah. When it was still fresh enough in your mind that yeah. you could capture some of those meaningful details. Right. Right. So you log- if you're logging a bug, you're creating a bug report, get get the details in there mm-hmm. so that you can make the decision about when when in the process and when in development you're going to tackle that bug yeah at a separate point yes right because you don't need to make that that decision at that the time where you actually make the report right. and i would actually argue that you shouldn't because you're in a different frame of mind well i think it depends if if the bug is very frequently and obviously game breaking yeah. Um, then you need to prioritize that right away because that's an issue that yeah. needs to be resolved right away. But I think in general, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, I don't think you need to be uh, prioritizing it until down the line. Yeah. Right, and it depends. Like, if you are a small team or a single developer, you can get a lot. You can get a lot done by oh, I encountered this bug. Mm-hmm. I have all the information. I will never be more capable of solving it than now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that so and we've expressed this on the show before. That attitude of like fix the bug immediately. Yeah. Um, but when you're working on a larger team, especially if you're doing pe- QA people to find the bug, then all that all that uh, work like working knowledge or, or short term memory you've yeah. got, like that doesn't apply. Yeah. And so you actually just need to or- organize and schedule things and prioritize yeah. things differently. Yeah. You only have that advantage when you're the person reporting and solving the problem. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's a good point. So I mean, I guess the sort of a maybe a thought experiment listeners can can take with them is like, is there any way to to take use the advantage you have in that that small team process? Mm-hmm. Could you is it scalable at all? Mm-hmm. Because I I think the convention uh, conventional wisdom is no. Yeah, and I think I probably agree with that. But yeah. I'd, I'd wonder. Yeah, as your as your team size changes, you have to adapt with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably. Well, that's not that's a topic for another time, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Adapting to a different team size, yeah, that would be. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Like changing the that would be, I think, a really difficult shift to make. But I'm sure. I mean, tons of people have made that shift. Yeah, yeah. Like it's totally. you want to fix things that you see something that's wrong, you want to fix it, right? So it it takes a different type of habit and and some discipline to be able to establish that habit to be like, okay, this is a problem. Right. I'm going to let the people know, and 
they will decide when we're going to fix it. And yeah. when I report it, I will say, this is a big problem. And they can take that into account. Yes. Yeah. If you trust them to actually do that, which, you know. So I guess that's kind of what I wanted to circle back to. I mentioned that, you know, in the teams that I'm working on, there there are business stakeholders who are helping to um, make decisions about what gets what gets prioritized, what gets thrown in, what, what rank that all the different work is on the backlog, bugs yep. and new features and all that. Um, and what goes into a sprint and it's all informed by conversations with everyone who's going to be doing the work, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, the decisions about what's going in which order. That's a, that's like a, that's like a full-time job for people yeah. on this team. Um, so that's how it works for me. I talked a little bit about the trade-offs, you know, what developer time has to go into fixing this. What are the uh, advantages for players and end users? What's the value to the business? You know, <laughs> how excited is the team to work on this? That can be a factor. Yeah. Um, those are all the, those are just some of the many different factors that go into, you know, deciding what goes when. I think I had a conversation with one of the product owners a couple of weeks ago and she was, she was kind of going through the roadmap. Now roadmap is not bugs and issues, right? That's bigger. But the way she was talking about how she had organized the roadmap was so fascinating because she's like, I want the team to work on this smaller thing first, even though the thing that we really want to do that's really high valuable, like high value for everyone is this thing that's a little further out. I want us to start with this smaller, exciting thing so that we can start getting our new processes in place and so that the team can work on something that they're excited about. Yeah. And that so we'll learn from doing the smaller thing, all the stuff that we need to have figured out so that we can actually execute on the bigger thing. Mm -hmm. And that was fascinating. Like, so all, those are the kinds of decisions that, that go into like ranking a backlog and figuring out, okay, are we going to do bugs this week? Or are we not? I can see that. Uh, I can see that in the same case with bugs, because like some bugs, you know, are just going to take a long time. They're going to take a few days and you, you got to like diagnose it first and figure out why the heck this is even happening. Right. But some bugs are just like really minor things like, number isn't displaying correctly or something. I don't know. I guess yeah. it depends on what it, the bug is. Um, and it's sometimes it's really satisfying to just, you know, take a day and knock out a good 25 bugs, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, get them. Yeah, just Squish get those. It'll, it'll improve the game significantly and it won't feel like you're doing too much effort and that whole day will just, you'll feel productive, but like you won't have put in too much work and it feels great. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, it, it also reduces the amount of mode switching you do as a developer. Yes. Yeah. You decide yeah. to focus on one thing. Mm-hmm. Rather than like, let's fix this bug so I can keep working on this feature. Yeah, I mean that's not necessarily the, a, a a worse way to do it. Right, but there are benefits to mm -hmm. just like yeah, having a, a list and just tearing through it. Yeah, yeah. Bat batching your tasks so that you don't have to um, mode switch like you were saying, mm -hmm. which costs costs mental energy and productivity. Right. We'll get Eric back on here to talk about that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to know. Um, so how do those decisions about what gets fixed when or what gets tackled when, what effort are you putting into? How do those decisions get made in the teams that you guys are a part of now? Um, I, I guess I, I, I prioritize bugs that are keeping work or keeping other people from being able to do work. Yeah. Because um, like I'm the only programmer, so I have to, I'm the only one who can fix bugs. Um, so it's important for me to make sure that the, the bugs that are holding other people back are fixed before I fix the bugs that are holding me back. At least that's how I've been prioritizing it. Maybe that's not the best way of doing it, but it works for me. Um, yeah, so I think that has been kind of how I've been approaching it. Otherwise, if they're like really most what I've been working on have been prototypes, we haven't really, you know, we haven't 
I'm not working on Skullgirls. Um, so like we're working on or you know, work on different other prototypes and stuff. So when they're like minor bugs and stuff that most people won't run into or um ultimately are fine for the the this week or whatever, um I just won't even deal with them until later mm-hmm. when we get to that point. That's when you're like batching them. You take some yeah. of the more minor things to be like, Okay, take a half day, we're gonna knock these out. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. I had this um mental when you said like i'm the only programmer i had this like a mental image this vivid image of you like on the top of a mountain with a flag and all the other people on future club <laughs> behind you and you're like forward flag in one hand keyboard in the other exactly exactly <laughs> that's me <sighs> mark how about you um on my current project on dream said laura i'm the uh, one of two programmers and so, and we have weekly meetings, yeah. so we will tend to say, it's like, a, what did we do last week? What are we going to do this week? And so we'll sort of divvy up tasks mm-hmm. as we go. But then we each have, the two of us, me and Mike, have sort of like ownership over areas of the application. And so that usually means that when we track the, when we discover bugs, it goes into the person's pile who worked on it. Yeah. So it's a pretty simple system. But like uh, like we did on Widget Satchel, we just make sure that that list doesn't get long. Mm-hmm. So if if something comes up, we do halt everything else yeah. um, generally to fix it, um, as to not to not make it work because we don't do we don't have we don't well okay so we kind of have sprints in a way where sure. like the, each week we report what are we going to do this week let's make sure we we knock it out yeah but if there are bugs that pop up then we just talk through the week and and prioritize that over finishing the feature we wanted to get done. Okay. Um, so that, that that list never gets too long. Okay. And that's just a self-preservation method, frankly. Yeah. Because if we, if that list gets too long, then suddenly it, th- there's dependencies involved yep. um, as to what you can work on. Um, and so I think, and I, I really do think that works really well because of how small our team is. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that, that that can scale, but I also think that the benefits you have from like, categorizing them extensively um we would not see those benefits right because most of the stuff that's going wrong in the application can exist in our minds yeah like (laughs) for the most part yeah Yeah. right Um, right right. and so um it it tends to be a lot easier just to like solve this now instead of taking exhaustive notes for later i I imagine it allows you that keeps you flexible too right so you almost always have a, a build kind of ready for things when you need to, yeah, that is true. Although we haven't we haven't uh, needed that necessarily. Sure, we will make a build and and send it to the publisher every so often. Yeah, um, but um, uh, it's not. I mean, yeah, I mean it's helpful for that, but we don't see that as as a as a motivator necessarily. Oh, sure, that's fair. I, I guess a publisher asks for a build, we mm-hmm. can say, "Can you wait two weeks?" Yeah, and yeah. Send them and, and they should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but. It, uh, <laughs> I guess like in, in, in previous in my previous job, sometimes I would let bugs pile up too much, mm-hmm. um, and it would be a problem if there was all of a sudden a thing that would come up, and they'd be like, "Make a build really quick," and I'd be like, "Okay, um, it's not ready." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I guess at, at, at in those times, I had wished that I would have fixed yeah. more bugs than I did, but and um, I think what's what we're bringing to light is yeah. um, Ellen, the, as you described the systems you're working with and the teams you're working with, this is these are these are products that need maintenance. They're mm-hmm. live now and they're being built in real time as a customer base is using them, their software as a service. Yep. Um, we're in the stage where we're not bug hunting yet. We don't have QA. Yeah. URI. 
And so that pro- once that process begins, it's a separate process. Yes. Yep. Um, we're still involved, obviously, mm. but not in the same way. We're talking about how we handle it as we as we build these projects. Right. Yeah. That's a good um, point. Which is different from a, the sort of, uh, of the, you know, the laying down the tracks as you go. Well, so like when I finished Treasure Stack, um, you know, when it came out, there were still plenty of bugs and it had a number of patches. Mm-hmm. Um and I think the we we kind of went the same way. It was just less pressure because like we weren't trying to get the game out. We were just trying to make sure that these certain bugs were fixed. When they were like urgent bugs, you really rushed to get that uh that uh first day patch in. Yeah. Um. But aside from that, like we were still we were much more. I want to say we were more lax about it. We you know we wanted to get it out in a timely manner, but we were not as uh rushed to get things out the door as soon as we could mm-hmm. in time for a certain release because we kind of set the release right. at that point. Um, but I think our our practice was fairly similar. I don't remember there being any drastic changes after the game came out. We just kind of kept going as we were doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, we did a, a day one patch for Widget Satchel as well. Mm-hmm. That was really helped a lot by the... Um, the, our Japanese publisher yeah. who, who QA the game for us, yeah. um, which was something that like I was doing as well as developing it near the end. I was asking all of you to play it. Yeah. And you, so you, you helped me throw. Yeah. We would report a few bugs. Yeah. The bugs would go in the list, but yeah. it was very nice just to have also someone else on the other side of the world playing it. Yeah. Yeah. And, I've been working on it for yeah, months. Right. It, right. It, it was essentially a free QA department for us and it was, it was great. It, yeah. I mean, as stressful as that final year was, it really, really helped mm-hmm. because I they could just I, I could just put those things on the list, yeah, and then it would also give me a lot of like, oh, okay, interesting, and so, but you know, and and because that list always stayed short, yeah, if they put a lot on there, it just made the priority to get through them really high, yeah, and that's how we I prioritize mm-hmm. bugs in the last year of Widget Satchel is just like it's urgent once there's more than four of them, yeah, <laughs> yeah, then they're all urgent, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, I have one last question for everybody. Yes. Verification. Oh. Right? Mm-hmm. Verification. Mm-hmm. Double checking the bug has been fixed. <laughs> and this is interesting. I, I think of all the different things, this is where I've experienced the most variation between different teams Okay, about how it happens. I've been on teams where it's very, like the, the QA person is both logging bugs and is the only person who is allowed to verify that something is done. Yeah. Right. Um, which I kind of like. <laughs> um, and then I've been on teams where it's just not really clear who's verifying that things are done. <laughs> it just kind of happens and things are so moved to resolve. And it yeah. makes me wildly uncomfortable. Um, and then there are teams where the producer is the one who's verifying that things are, you know, resolved. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> tell me why that makes you feel that way Steven. well because there were some periods uh, when, uh, at my previous job where it would have been nice for the boss to let me know that you needed a thing done in a certain way or whatnot. you know um, so it's just nice to know that the you know the the people who are keeping track of your schedule and stuff are paying attention to what you're doing mm-hmm. so like having them verify those things I think is just it's it's, it's just more reassurance that yeah that they're doing their jobs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I I've, I guess I've been on both ends of that where like, you know, like when with Vengeance, we were the ones QA or testing. Right, it's all on you. But we would bring in a, a play test and the bug would show up again and then we'd be angry and we'd curse the world. Um, but Silently. Uh, no. Not at the... Oh, no, we do it loud. <laughs> you were cursing the world? I, yeah, I cursed the world. Literally, I does was the word I would say. Curse the world or something. Oh, okay. I thought, yeah. <laughs> I thought something different and I was really confused. Oh. Thanks for clearing that out. You're welcome. <laughs> 
Yeah, when I say curses, I don't say it ironically. Uh, <laughs> uh, Literally the word cursing. Yes. Um, um, and so, like, that was um, kind of frustrating sometimes because, like, you know, you when you test it a little bit, you only have so much time to test it because every time you're testing a thing, you're uh, taking away time from development. Yeah. Um, and obviously, for game design stuff, you want to test it because, like, that's important. Um, but when a bug would crop up in playtest, that would prevent people from testing the features and stuff that we wanted them to test. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, it would just kind of get in the way of things in ways that, especially when they would come back up, mm -hmm. um, it would get in the way of things in ways that we didn't like. Hyper annoying. Yes. So you're saying that if someone had verified that the bug was actually fixed before you brought it to Well, maybe? ultimately, yeah. we tried to do that. Right. And we just couldn't do that in a way that would prevent bugs from not, or from that would actually be true mm. you know we didn't actively yeah. do a good enough job verifying the bugs because we were working on it right. too much i think well yeah you didn't you didn't develop test procedures basically yes yeah. um whereas like um uh, my previous job um i think qa was the one who would verify that the bug was fixed um sometimes the bugs would still come up down the line but that might have just been due to like changes we made to the code or something mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. but most of the times qa was pretty good about um uh, making sure that bugs were fixed and when i worked for qa at, at concrete um that that's how i did it too is i would be the one i think verifying to making sure that the bug was fixed and things and i would test it it test my um what's the words we just said it uh how to get the bug to happen <laughs> and uh production yeah thanks yeah. <laughs> um and um then i would uh yeah and then i'd you know make sure that that was fixed and then i would let the, uh, the developer know and put it in the bug and say this is fixed now so that I I guess I've been in both ways. I definitely prefer having somebody else verify it yeah. because when you're you know in it, you're like, oh, logically this all works because you coded it, and you're like, right. yeah, I'm I'm the best coder ever. I know this is fixed now, um, <laughs> but you need someone else to test it. I think because like otherwise you're uh, <laughs> you're biased. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's there's some there's an objective way to handle it. I sure. mean, that in my experience has almost exclusively been for bugs that are reported to me that I didn't find. Yeah. Then I. The first thing I do is go find them. Okay. So rather than starting to fix it, I do I do the you know the reproduction steps. But yeah. even when they're not thorough, yeah, I will make sure that it, that way I can know I can check again after I've done the work. Yeah. Uh, without without having to pass that back and forth again. Okay. Um. So I mean, there's efficiencies lost and efficiencies gained yeah. in that kind of way. But I think it is. I I think I don't think the developer is necessarily. I mean, as you just say, biased. Yeah, you're, uh, in, you're in right. That same way. You're right. Um, they may be the most qual qualified to know if it's fixed. Yeah. Um, it's really. I think it really just QA handling that is a way to save time and resources, mm -hmm. right? And I'm sure that's how it's done in larger groups and teams because a QA employee uh, taking an hour to test or verify something is cheaper than having a lead developer doing it. it yeah. It might. It might be that simple. Um, that yeah. that and I also say like at least for the so the projects that I'm working on are all web based, all of them. Okay, yeah. Include like one of them is a web app, right? So when we're queuing something, like when I make a change to something, I'll check in my browser that it's that it's fixed. Mm -hmm. Um, if I'm actually making a change to the code, which for the projects I'm working on right now, nope, <laughs> <laughs> not not correct. Mm. Um, but sometimes I'll check to see if like a, a solution that I have is make sense to somebody or if it's a really big design change i'll have to do a little prototyping blah 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 anyway if i if i am in a situation where i'm actually making changes to the code i will make a change it i'll push it up to the web and i'll refresh everything clear my cache and i'll see if i've made the change however it still goes to qa yeah. because as part of qa's testing procedures they're testing it on different browsers and different versions yeah. and, oh right right and yeah. stuff like that so that's a yeah that's a very good point yeah i'm not going to take the time to test it in 
Chrome and in Edge and in whatever else is out there now. Yeah. So many. Firefox. Yeah. All of those. That's a Safari. Few. I'm definitely not testing it on Safari. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then, of course, if it's if it's responsive, mm-hmm. then you got to test it on your mobile as well. Yeah. Right? And, no. <laughs> right. It, yeah, that's true. It's a lot of them. Uh, yeah. There's uh, one of the, I think we've, have we done a whole to- episode on QA? Like as a as a topic, we must have like right? a whole episode. Well, not necessarily I mean, a whole episode, we just, but we should do a whole episode on QA because it's a whole involved process. We have this whole roundtable that we just did, Stephen. <laughs> this was bug tracking. This is the specific part. That's true. I want the that's whole, a part of QA. The whole thing. The whole thing. Yeah. Okay. One day we'll talk about that. It'll be, a, and we'll link back to this one. Yes. That's our show. For show notes and links on today's topic, go to our website, nicegames.club. And if you want to hear us talk about bugs, it was one of the first topics we tackled in episode five, Bananas from Here to a Tournament. Ah, classic. Which is, uh, yeah, maybe our first classic. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So check that out on the website um, if you'd like to learn more. Uh, Visit us on Twitter at Nice Games Club, where Dale tweets about game dev resources and spooky game dev costumes. We like hearing from you, so tweet back or email us, contact at nicegames.club. Nice Games Club is on Patreon. Support the show and get stuff. Sign up at patreon.com slash nicegamesclub. And if you want to keep things more casual, just stop by nicegames.club slash discord and say hello. So until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice. can't believe i said that <laughs> could have just kept going and you didn't i literally wasn't paying attention at that moment <laughs> i said we're always game to try something and i'm like oh really <laughs> oh that's great as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming i wish i had used indeed if you need to hire you need indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast ditch the busy work use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and indeed doesn't just help you hire faster 93 percent of employers agree indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent indeed survey and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com podcast that's indeed.com podcast terms and conditions apply everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.